Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and said and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Let's pray. God of glory, we we come humbled, eager, anticipatory. As we come to your word, we ask that you would break it open for us. That we might, by your grace, see the treasure therein. And Lord, beholding your glory in your word and in faith in the person of Christ, would we worship? Would we obey? So Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, speak today. Living God, living word, speak. Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus has just finished the the. Olivet Discourse or his, his teaching about really the, 
the final climactic ending of Jerusalem and Judaism and ultimately of the Old Covenant. And, and all of those things are coming to bear in chapter 21. And now in chapter 22, there's a shifting of scene. Obviously, there's a shifting away from the Mount of Olives, but there's a chronological shifting into the days of unleavened bread, the days of the Passover. And if you were curious as to what this is, um, look at Exodus chapter 12. This is when it was first, when the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They are being delivered by the hands of God. And there are these series of plagues that come upon Egypt because they refuse to liberate Israel. And the climactic ending of those plagues is the death of the firstborn. And the way that God provides a covering for his people, that he provides protection for Israel, is through the fest, what turns into be the, the festival, the feast of Passover, where the lamb is slain. The people crowd in their homes. They take partake in this sacrificial meal and the blood is placed on the lentil or over the doorpost so that the destroyer, the angel of death who sweeps over Egypt, passes over those houses that are covered, if you will, in the blood of the, the Passover lamb. So that's why it's called Passover. You get it? Passover. So the Passover lamb is sacrificed so that those who are in the house are delivered. And so that became a standing day for the people of Israel. It was on that day that God sort of broke the grip of Pharaoh over the people of Israel and began bringing them out of Egypt. And the people of Israel, the Jews, began to participate in this and they continued to do so. Uh, but there was a Passover meal and the Passover, as, the, as God gave his law, it, it sort of grew and you find the if you will, the statutes regarding it in Leviticus chapter 23, 5 through 9, where God says the Passover is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for a week, the people would eat unleavened bread. Now, what's the significance of unleavened bread? Well, bread that's unleavened, one, it doesn't have yeast in it. And and yeast, it doesn't have yeast in it because yeast and bread takes time. I'm not a bread maker, but I hear these things. Uh, It takes time to rise. So unleavened bread was something that the people would take. It it, it represented their, their pilgrimage, that they're coming out of Egypt. They don't have time. They don't have time to let bread rise. They don't have time for these things, that they are a people in motion. They're going from slavery to promised land. Now, we know that takes some time. And so they would have this week of unleavened bread. But book ended there is what Scripture says are holy convocations. That there would be holy days that are, are full of rest. There would be a type of Sabbath. They wouldn't be the, the Sabbath day, but they would be a rest day. This is why Friday, on Je- the day of Jesus' death, is called the day of preparation. It was a holy convocation. It was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so people should not be up and out and about running around. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this was approaching, and as it's approaching, the chief, now consider who we're talking about, the chief priests and the scribes. These are those who are, one, the chief priests are tasked with the the worship life of the people of Israel. They're tasked with, with performing the sacrifices and doing the orders of the temple, making sure that stuff is in order, and this is a huge time. There would be tens of thousands of visitors 
falling upon Jerusalem. And so the chief priest's job is to make sure that this is going to happen so that people are able to find room and they're able to bring their Passover lambs. They're able to do all of these things and participate in the worship of the temple. The scribes are the, if you will, they would be the the Bible scholars. They would be the legal scholars who know the word of God. They They would know the Levitical code. They would know the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And they would know all of the the um, the rabbinic teaching that springs from it. Now, we'll talk about that later so that they would be experts in the law. They would be experts in the, the legal code. And so they should have their hands full during the Passover. They should have their hands full during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But rather than focusing on worship and helping other people worship, which is their job, their calling, what are they doing? Verse 2. I'm, I'm kind of just jumping into this so that we move, okay? So I, was, I had this whole, like, introduction made for you, and, uh, and I said, let's just, let's just go after it. So uh, if you need that later, I'll email it to you. Um, it's, it's really not that good, so I skipped it. Um, the chief, the chief priests and scribes, verse 2, and rather than getting ready to help people worship, which is the, this is the, the chief end of man, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, is to glorify God and adjure Him forever. That here's their task, not only to worship Yahweh, but to help other people do it too. And this has always been the task of Israel. This is why Israel is constituted, is that to help to bless the nations, Genesis chapter 12. So, Genesis chapter 12 is where God calls Abram, says, I'm going to bless you so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Always a part of Israel's designed DNA, their spiritual covenantal DNA, was the blessing of the nations. Okay? So now, here at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had Jews from all over the place coming, but also people who were God-fearers, who had become Jews, who weren't born Jews, and people who were interested in the God of Judaism. All these people. And they're the chief priests and scribes. I just can't get over this, what's happening. Okay? And I want you to be stuck on it for a second, too. So we're stuck on it. That they should be helping people worship. They should be making room. They should be clearing out the temple so that as you, if you were to look at the schematic of the temple, it's sort of uh, like, not quite, but it's like concentric rectangles or squares. So there, but there is an outer court of the Gentiles. And it's the outer court of the Gentiles that Jesus clears out, by the way, during that last week. It's because there the Gentiles are supposed to come near enough to worship the God of Israel. So that when they, they were there trading their sheep and their turtle doves and all that kind of stuff, doing a trade, they were doing a trade in a spot where people ought to be worshiping. But here in verse 2, they're not helping people worship. They're not concerned about the temple life. They're not concerned about the sacrifices, making sure that everybody has enough lambs and sacrifices that they might not have been able to bring. They're not worried about, about um, logistics or, or sort of a spiritual attitude among themselves or within the temple. No, they are, they, rather than worship in their hearts, verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. Rather than worship, there's war. Not war between nations, But here you have those who are tasked by God with helping people worship. 
And rather than performing their task in worship as worship, they take up a post not of neutrality against with God, but an opposition and antagonism against God. They've taken up war in their hearts. Those who should be worshiping. Both they, the chief priests and scribes, and Judas himself take up a position, a posture of war. Psalm 55, 21, it says this about the, the one who does not fear God. He has put forth, verse 20, he has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter. Sounds like Judas in the garden. But his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And there's a, this climax that's, that we're growing to, that we're going to, that there's been all of this opposition against Jesus. And now that all the plans are beginning to distill, there's a, there's a clarity of, of scheme that the chief priests and scribes, they can't, they can't come with a full frontal assault because of the people, for they were afraid of the people. Which, as an aside, it happens twice in this passage, but it's fascinating how the will of the people restrains wicked rulers. The Bible's not political, though. I need a sarcasm sign, like, up here. (laughs) Um, And so, their hearts are at war instead of worship. Rather than engaging in worship, they're not... uh, And the worship is that they're celebrating the deliverance of God. The Passover is altogether gracious. Don't let anybody ever tell you that grace only shows up in the New Testament. But the Passover is all about the grace of God. They graciously, magnificently, and sovereignly saves his people. He does so by his, by his own prerogative, and he does so on his own. Now he has his spokesmen and he has his, his miracles that he entrusts to Moses and to Aaron. He has the, hey, make sure that you cover yourselves under the blood of the Passover lamb. But this is a gracious move of God. And as the cross is to us, so the Passover was to them. The Passover is the redemptive heartbeat of the Old Testament. And it flows, through, you could trace it almost through every book of the Bible. Either it's there explicitly or it's there kind of under, underneath. But God's deliverance of the people, bringing them out of Egypt into the, through the wilderness, into the promised land, is the defining moment. This is the, the, the gracious covenantal heartbeat of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus sits down to the Passover meal, it's in that context. It's in the context of, of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's in the context of Passover, but it's in the context of the Exodus. And in fact, he's saying, as he said um, at the Mount of Transfiguration earlier in Luke's Gospel, this was a long time ago that we dealt with it. But if you remember, he goes up on the Mountain of Transfiguration. Who was there? Moses? Elijah. And then Jesus was transfigured. He was He was glorified there on the mountain of transfiguration before two of his disciples or three of his disciples, excuse me. And Moses and Elijah show up there. And and what does it say? The content of his conversation with Moses and Elijah with the law and the prophets. 
Moses' law, Elijah prophets. With the law and the prophets, Jesus' conversation is about his departure, what many English translations say. But the word there is exodus. So that what God did in delivering a people out of Egypt, Jesus is about to fulfill. He is about that, he's about to be the true and better Moses. He is about to, to accomplish the true and better exodus. So it's in the context of Passover, the context of God's gracious deliverance of a knuckleheaded people. The people were knuckleheads before they got into the wilderness. It just got really explicit there where they're murmuring, grumbling. But in the, you remember in Egypt, in Egypt, they're like, no, 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 don't make Pharaoh mad. You know, look, we're, we're having to make bricks without straw now. Are you serious, Moses? Stop. There's no, there, there's very little faith being demonstrated in them. Okay, so it's a gracious deliverance, and this is what Passover ought to be. But the people's worship had become so corrupted and so twisted, and their understanding of God's grace in their midst had been so lost, that they thought that accomplishing God's will, chief priests and scribes, they thought that accomplishing God's will required them to kill this guy rather than to worship. They had forgotten the gracious deliverance of God in the people of Israel. Verse 3, Satan enters into Judas, who is called Iscariot, this man of infamy in the New Testament. One of the twelve, he was one of the twelve disciples. He was there with Jesus. He was in char- from other scriptures we know, he was in charge of, them, of the money. And Satan enters into him and he went away in disgust with the chief priests and officers. So he goes to them and says, notice who the proactive one here is. The chief priests and scribes are at war, but they're trying to figure out how to find their in to kill Jesus. And here comes their golden goose. Judas, who's going to give them the in. And they were glad and agreed to pay him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him. So there's this, this machine in motion, machine of war. And, and I, I keep using that language on purpose because you need to understand that sin, when we break God's law, we disobey God, we dishonor God, we have other gods before him, we take his name in vain, we don't honor him in our hearts, we don't obey him with our lives, that we aren't just saying, oh, we, I, I messed up and I, I need to write it a, a thousand times on the chalkboard of heaven, right? Like you break the rules at school back in the day. So, so for some of you younger folks, we didn't used to have whiteboards with markers or like smart boards on the, there was chalk, it was green and the, screen, the, the, the chalkboard was green usually, and it was, and it was very messy. Okay. Um, so that this isn't how we're delivered. We're not, we're not trying to say we, we write all these things out, and then we're free. We've, we've done it. It's no big deal. And this is how we, we treat wrongdoing too, often, sort of sweep it under the rug. And that's how we expect God to treat wrongdoing. But what we need to understand is that when we do that, we are not understanding what sin actually is. Sin is a tearing of the fabric of reality because God holds all things together. 
He is the one who is set according to his, to his will, according to his law for creation. Sunrise, sunset, constellations, moon, all that kind of stuff. He set us in his creation for his will, for his work. And that when we do not do what God tells us to do, it is not just, oh, I, I, I've kind of messed up. It is, as R.C. Sproul once said, it is cosmic treason. It's an act of war. And I just want to, like, if we had time, I would just let, I would put that on the boilerplate, right? Put that on the front burner and just let you cook on it for a second. When we understand, when we look at the chief priests and scribes and we understand that before God's grace stepped into my life, this was my heart too. It was a heart not not seeking after the worship of God, but it was a heart at war with God, seeking my own designs. How can I make myself happy? How can I fulfill myself? How can I do all of these things? How can I get the fame? How can I get the glory? How can I be self-satisfied and self-righteous? And all of that desire is war against God. It's not worship. So it's so easy to look at the chief priests and scribes and to drop the sledgehammer upon them. As, as rightfully... We ought to. But then we must, in that same breath, same breath, say with the Apostle Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none good. No, not one. Chief priests, scribes, Judas, Peter, none good. You, me, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, Adrian Rogers, fill in the blank of your faith hero. There's none good. Not in of ourselves. Hearts at war. And dear one, if you are not in Christ today, that is the status of your heart. As you innocently go about your dreams in this world, so you think. As you innocently live for yourself, you live for your glory. As the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church, their God is their belly. You live for your lusts. You live for your appetite. Not necessarily just physical, but you live to consume, which our culture is excellent at. That's war. Because you're living in God's world according to your rules rather than to God's rules. And what I need you to see is that we're all in that boat. And as we pursue liberty for ourselves, unlimited, unchecked, I get to say what I want to say. I'm the master of the ship. I'm the captain of the ship, the master of my fate. You can't tell me what I can do. You can't tell me who I am. You can't tell me anything. No authority over me. I'm free. Dear ones, that's not freedom. That's slavery. As we seek to be our own gods, taking of the fruit of the tree like our first parents saying, we don't need him, I can do it myself. Give me my bootstraps and let me pull myself up by them. I can do it. Look at me. That's a heart of war. And while you might right now deny it, I pray that the Holy Spirit will Convict you of sin. That's his job. 
We are not better, but by grace. So we, Jodas, Jodas, whoever that is, Judas um, begins seeking an opportunity, begins this, this, the war machine of his heart. Could you imagine the conversations, the interactions, the, the unwritten things that are happening between he and the other disciples and trying to figure out where Jesus might be and the interactions between he and Jesus, this, this duplicity and, and false exterior that he is presenting before the Lord and before his, those his, who were supposed to be his brothers around him with war in his heart against the God of glory. And yet it's by design. Even his war, even his disobedience, even his betrayal is according to what God has planned. It becomes very evident as Jesus dispatches two of his disciples into the city to go and prepare a Passover, Peter and John. And he says, you're going to find this guy carrying this. He's going to take you to this house. You're going to say this, and then I'm going to take you to a room. That, that's Jesus saying, here is my predetermined path. I'm choosing this. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Even the war of Judas, even the work of the scribes and the Pharisees, all of this, I'm laying down my life. And you're going to find it just like I planned. And you could say, well, maybe Jesus is just looking ahead in time. And honestly, in, in application, is it different? He's looking ahead in time and he's saying, yep, that's the way it's going to be. I've got no problem with that. That's a little flippant, as we'll see as we get into the Garden of Gethsemane next week. But it's according to plan. Acts 2.23 makes this clear. And then I'll move on to the actual supper. I know we're, we got time to go. Acts 2.23. This man, Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross. Now, this is Peter. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon in Jerusalem. So the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's come, uh, tongues of fire divided. They're speaking in languages, tongues, and people are understanding them. And then he takes the opportunity to explicitly preach the gospel to the crowd. And he says, this man, Jesus, is delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God has, God has done, he's, he's ordained this. If here, uncomfortable world, he's predestined this. When you look at the events of Passion Week, there's no chance, there's no luck involved. This is Jesus' purpose. Where we're coming to why He has come, and He's setting out, this is what it is. And you see a little tidbit of it by sending Peter and, Jane, Peter and John into the sitting saying, you're going to find a dude with a pitcher of water. Follow him. He's delivered over according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. By the hands of godless men. They did it. There is, there's no... Now, this is a bigger sermon that we don't have time for. 
But there's no contradiction here between the sovereign design ordaining power of God and the free choice of wicked men to crucify Jesus. There's no contradiction. We want to make one. God is God. Let every man be a liar. He's God and you're not. And he said, I'm doing this on purpose. There's there's no oops to this. And yet, Judas, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Anna, Annas, and Caiaphas, and all the others who are part of this, this betraying movement, this war against Jesus, they're all godless, they're all accountable, they're all responsible, and they did not do anything that they did not want to do in the sovereign design of God. Okay. As there's a brain nugget for you, we're going to move on. Um, But verse 13, they found everything according to plan. They found everything as it was told to them. It was everything. Jesus was right. So then at the end, when the hour had come, they're reclining at the table and and Jesus is now just to get the intimacy of the picture. The intimacy of the picture that there's a table and they're literally like reclining. What do you think about when you're reclining? You think about your lazy boy or whatever you got at the house, Um, but they would be laying down. They would lay on their sort of left side or left elbow and there would be a common meal in the middle. And with their right hand, they would be reaching in and taking the bread and dipping in whatever and do, or whatever. They would be eating with their right hand, leaning. So you're you're sort of in a, in a sort of a, almost a circle so that you're I don't know about you, but if I were reclining next to you eating barbecue, it would be a much more intimate picture than what we do in our fellowship hall. The fellow, Right. This is why John, in his gospel, he's, later, he's able to lean back upon the chest of Jesus and say, who's doing this? Such an intimate picture. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. But I want you to show the nearness. They reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And, and Judas is there. <sighs> Judas is there. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's longed for this. And there's two verses... That's verse 16 and verse 18, that this is a kingdom meal and that what Jesus is administering and instituting for his apostles and for the church is something that is not only looking back to the Passover, but even more so looking ahead to the culmination, the consummation of the kingdom of God. It's looking ahead that what we are about to partake together, it is a remembrance of what Jesus has done. Don't get me wrong. Heartbeat of our, of the Lord's Supper is what Christ has done. But it is not only an his, historical ordinance. It's not just a historical thing that we're like, oh, I'm, it's a history lesson today. We're thinking about the cross and the empty tomb. But dear ones, we're tasting not only the forgiveness that Jesus has given us through the cross and empty tomb, but we're tasting the hope of the day to come. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That Jesus, just like us today, we're longing, right? We're in this world saturated with sin, fractured and broken. And we're longing not just for Jesus, which we ought to be, but we're longing for Jesus to come and set it right. 
To take away sorrow and take away sickness and take away tears and take away, take away war and nuclear arms and take it all away and set this world to right. Vindicate the innocent and condemn the wicked. And He is going to do that. And we will have a seat at the King's table in glory. How awesome! And what we're doing today, this is not the end. This is a physical, palpable reminder of what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do. And in fact, what Christ continues to do in us. In verse 18, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is anticipating. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now, but He will come. He will gather his people to him and we will sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so that there is a sense in which what we are about to participate in is the marriage feast yet to be. It's an already and not yet of the kingdom. And he, verse 19, and he had taken some bread and he gave it... And given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here is the free offer of the gospel. The gospel is extended to you today. And the proof that I have of that, that for everyone who believes upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved today. Wherever you are, you need to know that God is for you here. Look, he, is, he says, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. Saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. He breaks. He's saying, this is my body. Rent. He rends it. He tears it. He opens himself up to be wounded and murdered so that everyone can come to God. Peter says, so that he might bring us to God. So that as the, remember when Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn asunder. And he makes a new way to have access to God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that that new way is through his flesh. Jesus' body is torn before you and extended before you. For you first, before you take it with your lips, for you first to receive it in faith. <clears throat> that you, this is my body. Now, there's been some debate, which I do not have time to enter into in church history. But the thing I'll say about this, that he does not literally mean his body because his body is sitting right there as he tears the bread. Okay, so it's, this is not transubstantiation of the Roman Catholics. This is not consubstantiation of the Lutherans. Big words that I'm not going to spell for you. Um, it's neither one of those because he's saying, Here's, this is, he's literally in a body, in body, tearing the bread, saying, this is my body. It is a, uh, it's a symbol. It's a significant symbol, but it's a symbol. And he's using it as such in the supper himself. So who are we to, to do else, otherwise with, with the bread? This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The language of remembrance is not just, it's not just history lesson, right? It's not just remembering historical facts, but the language of remembrance in the Bible is covenantal. 
the way that we continue to walk in the covenant that God has entered into with us, this relationship, that's what I mean by covenant, for lack of a longer explanation, this relationship that we, that we walk in, we do so through remembrance. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are told to be, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder, Paul says, but then also remember this, remember that God did this, remember that God brought you out of Egypt, remember that he delivered you by a mighty hand, remember, 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 remember. Because wandering begins with forgetfulness. So do this in remembrance of me. And that there's two things that are meeting here that I, that I want to, I wish I had a better, more, more time. I wish I had more time to open up. But two things that are happening here is that this is the reality of Christ's presence. This is my body, not physically, but he's there. He's here. This is my body and do this in remembrance. And the, the thing that I'll say that the bread and the cup, the bread and the juice, if, you're, if your cup tastes like wine, don't drink it. Is that a bad joke? Uh, the, the bread and the cup, they have spiritual significance for you as they lead you to faith in Jesus. Or they, better said, the, the bread and the cup have spiritual significance for you as they are means by which you are cherishing, believing, and trusting in Jesus through faith. They don't have significance for you if you are not connected to Jesus in faith. Better said. That was, that's not a good way to say it. They do not have spiritual sustaining significance for you if you are not connected to Jesus in faith. And in fact, if you take them, now listen carefully, if you take of the elements without being connected to Jesus in faith, you are not drinking life and salvation through faith. You are drinking judgment and condemnation, condemnation upon yourself. That's first Corinthians, yeah, first Corinthians chapter 11. This is my body. And the way that we connect with his body is through faithful remembrance. Remember and think. Could you imagine sitting there? And more so, could you imagine being at the foot of the cross? Seeing, seeing his body broken, saying this is broken for you so that you can come in. There's no other way to come in. There's no other torn opening between earth and heaven for wicked, war-hearted sinners to be transformed and to come into the kingdom of God except through the way that Christ makes in his body and his blood. So would you come in today? If you have never believed upon Jesus, dear one, this is the only, you need to abandon the fruitless works of your flesh and the war of your own heart, seeking your own glory and saying, Jesus has died for you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So be saved today. Jesus is the bread of life and there is no life outside of him. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup which is poured out for you. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is instituting, this is a covenant meal. So it's an acknowledgement that God has condescended to us in Christ 
to save everyone who is in Jesus by grace through faith. This is the covenant terms, right? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And that you are participants in the life of Jesus by trusting in him. It is not by your works. It is not by your goodness. It's not by holding up your tithe record, holding up your community service hours, but it's only by clinging with Christ in faith. It's only by Christ and Christ alone. This is the new covenant. Writer of Hebrews opens this up beautifully, and I'm just going to read it to you. I know we're extended. If you've got to go somewhere, don't go. This is more important. Probably, possibly, maybe. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I know that was a lot. But it's not through the blood of sacrifices, but through his own blood, he has entered into a heavenly courtroom and he is the mediator of a new covenant. And Paul says in 1 Timothy that there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other way, there's no other sacrifice, there's no other blood, there's no other way to deal with your sin, there's no other way to deal with your brokenness except for Jesus And the most scandalous thing about this is that you do not come bringing all of the load of everything you've ever done. You do not get to claim credit for all of your goodness, but you must leave it all and come to Christ. You you must see the bankruptcy of your own effort, the bankruptcy of your own goodness, that outside of Jesus, our good works are but filthy rags. They are putrid in the eyes of God. So lay down your war where you're exalting yourself. Bend the knee to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Trust that what He has done is sufficient for you to bring you to God and start following Him today. That's the invitation for you who are outside of Christ. For you who are in Christ, As we transition into the supper, open your heart before God. Because your hope today has always been your hope. You're not saved by grace and then you finish the, the race by works. You are saved by grace into obedience. But you're never saved through obedience.
through your good works. You were saved by Christ's obedience. So if you have slipped, tripped, fallen, sin has snagged you, Satan has tricked you. It is not your job to take yourself out behind the woodshed. Because Jesus was nailed to the wood on your account. So as you look inward and you see a heart that continues to struggle, that continues to wrestle sin, that continues to labor in this world, first order of business, make sure that you're in Jesus, that you're confessing and believing that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. And that his death and resurrection are enough. But being in Christ, you still struggle. And as you open up your heart, as you reflect upon what Christ has done, his body torn, his blood shed for you. Forsake yourself and trust in Christ. Do not allow those things to be Satan's weight upon you. He is the accuser of the brethren. But look at those sins of which we all carry and have. Say, free me from this because Jesus took this upon the cross. This is gospel, dear ones. It's the gospel for the unsaved and it's the gospel for the saved and it's the gospel that we need. So looking at your heart, turn your hearts upward to Jesus. Turn your hearts upward in worship and say, I want to receive what Christ has given. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And as he brings those sins up, you repent of them, but you cling to Jesus. Not in some hope that you'll be better, try harder tomorrow, which by grace you may. but that Jesus would be the sum and substance of your hope today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the cross. And, O Lord, would you draw us now into worship as we partake of the supper together. For those who are outside of Christ, Lord, I pray by your grace right now, right now as I speak, they would repent of their sins, confess their sin before you, and receive what is extended to them, offered to them in Jesus, forgiveness and eternal life. I pray for your weary and beleaguered saint who for various reasons, sinful and otherwise, are worn down today. I pray, O Lord, as they partake in these signs, these symbols of bread and juice, that as the bread touches their lips, Christ would touch their heart. As the, blood, the, the juice is applied to their tongue, the blood of Christ would wash over their hearts and they would be refreshed this day. For you are our only hope and stay. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.